things go wrong, you get stuck, you need a break, you need a, a change of scene. And if you have more than one project to get enthused about, your procrastination on the project you're stuck on suddenly becomes something creative in and of itself. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more creativity and meaning in your life through the simple act of slowing down. And today we are slowing down to question one of the virtues we hold most dear here in our secular capitalist society, and that's productivity. I say virtue because much of the productivity advice that we receive these days is dispensed with the subtle intimation that the person talking has the moral high ground. Procrastination is bad. Being disorganized is bad. Being distractible is bad. And if you are susceptible to these things, well, it's a bit of a moral failing. But it turns out that things aren't so black and white. And particularly when it comes to endeavors that demand creativity, the distinctions between what practices are good and what practices are bad blur even more. My guest today is Tim Harford, the author of the book Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. An economist and an all-around brilliant thinker, Tim is constantly questioning the quiet assumptions that we make about the practices that drive creativity and create lasting success. In this conversation, Tim and I debunk a bunch of widely accepted ideas about the most effective ways to work and to push creative projects forward. We talk about why letting stuff pile up on your desk is more effective than filing it away, how disorganized office environments give birth to innovation, and why a practice called slow-motion multitasking has been behind some of the greatest creative achievements of our time. We've got a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so let's go ahead and dive in. I'm curious to start out talking about how you became obsessed with messiness. Obviously, if you look at the massive popularity of a book like The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, it becomes pretty clear that people really resonate with this idea that being tidy and orderly is the solution to all of our problems um, and that it's going to make us happier and, and more productive. And yet in your book, Messy, you argue for the opposite approach. And I'm curious how you first became obsessed with the idea that being messy might actually be quite useful. Well, I should say first that Marie Kondo's book is great and I, I really like it and I've I've done it. I have I have executed the life-changing magic of tidying up and uh, it does uh, it does work to some extent depending on what your expectations are, but it's just a question of what's appropriate for what kind of problem, for what kind of situation. And, and when, you, um, when you read Marie Kondo, it becomes very clear, for example, that she just doesn't understand books at all. She just doesn't seem to be interested in books, and she's got no time for the idea that one might have a collection of books. 
And, you know, that's fine. Not everyone has to read. I love books, but not everyone has to read. I'm not judging her for that. But her system doesn't really work terribly well for books. Uh, and um, there are lots of other things it doesn't work for as well. So in my house, the kitchen is tidy. Proper Marie Kondo. Get rid of all the stuff you don't love. And everything else goes in its particular place. And after every meal, you can just tidy it all up and it, you can make it look like a magazine shoot. No problem. But what about my office? I've got a, I'm lucky enough to have a home office. My desk is often messy, sometimes tidy, sometimes messy. It fluctuates. Um, my inbox, the same. Sometimes I get to inbox zero. Sometimes it's just overflowing. And when you start applying Marie Kondo's philosophy, which is, well, you should just contemplate each thing and ask whether it sparks joy. If it sparks joy, keep it. If it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. Well, what, how do you do that with email? It doesn't, it doesn't even, it's like a category error. It doesn't even, there's nothing, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And she, don't, she never says it does make sense. So that's fine. But I'm still left with the problem of what do I do with my email? What do I do with the letters that people send me? What do I do with the books that I'm reading? What do I do with the projects that I'm working on? And uh, these things are, it turns out, intrinsically messy. The more I looked into it, the more I found there were some very, very interesting questions about um, how we organize in this very organic, uh, untidy sort of way, the strengths and weaknesses of doing that. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be a really rich topic. And the, and the book was a very messy book to write. Appropriately enough, halfway through writing the book, I stopped writing it and I wrote a completely different book. I wrote a book called The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. And then I went back to Messy and I finished it. And in fact, there is a whole chapter in Messy. Um, I don't think I mentioned that fact that I, that I wrote these two books in parallel, but there's a whole chapter in, in Messy that discusses all the different successful people who have written or it created works in exactly this sort of way and why it works and why it helps. So it, to some extent, the whole thing was a kind of self-diagnosis, self-therapy, trying to understand why it is that I can keep my kitchen tidy and, and, and yet I can't keep my desk tidy. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and I want to come back to that sort of switching, uh, you know, between different large creative projects in a minute. But for the moment, let's come back to the office, which you mentioned. You were talking about your home office, but I'm thinking about, you know, the office that uh, many of us, you know, come together to work in every day. And it's a place where everyone really wants to encourage creativity, but it's also a place where people are pretty obsessed with maintaining order. And a lot of people have this perception that the more orderly your desk is, the more productive you are, that tidiness somehow relates to effectiveness. But you looked at some pretty interesting experiments which indicate that what makes you productive and how you arrange your workspace may not be related to tidiness and, and also that it's a very personal thing. It, it is. I mean, the, f the first thing to say is, well, why, why would having a tidy desk make you more productive? I mean, there's just, is that, have you seen an artist's studio? I mean, there's no, there's no reason why that would make any sense. And yet I think what happened is ideas from uh, lean manufacturing and, you know, high quality precision engineering processes making uh, integrated circuits for computers, making cars, making quality optical instruments, that sort of thing. Ideas from those domains bled into just regular office space. And suddenly your office has to be super clean, super tidy. Everything needs to be ordered. Everything needs to be organized. And we didn't stop and ask ourselves, 
why that would make any sense. Uh, and and this, it, it's the same point that I just made with the kitchen and, and and the office. What works in the kitchen doesn't necessarily work in the office. You need to use the system that's appropriate. So, um, so what is the evidence on having a tidy desk? Well, a couple of different studies. Um, one that really blew my mind was uh, conducted um, by uh, two British psychologists, Alex Haslam and Craig Knight, and they set up an office space and asked people to come in and work in this office space and to do various tasks like sorting out uh, email and correspondence and they did got them to do some crosswords and just a variety of kind of fairly undemanding mental tasks with a pencil and paper. Now in some cases these people were doing this in a super minimalist office. In other cases, the office was decorated in the way a lot of offices are decorated. So there were some pot plants, there were some somewhat tasteful photographs of close-up photographs of flowers on the wall, looked a little bit like Georgia O'Keeffe um, artworks. Uh, and, and what they found was, well, people prefer the pot plant. They, they, they like it a bit more, they get a bit more done, but there wasn't a big deal. Then there were two more steps to the trial. So for some people, they were told... You control your space. Here are the pot plants. Here are the Georgia O'Keeffe style photographs. And uh, do what you like. If you want us to take them away so you work in a minimal space, no distractions, that's fine. You want to put them under the desk, beside the desk, by the window, hang the pictures there, hang them, whatever you want to do. You arrange the space the way you want it and then you start work. Uh, And when they did that, people got way more done and much happier. And of course, this is all completely superficial, but what isn't superficial is the sense that this is your space and you control the space and you can do what you like in the space. The fourth element of the trial was for some people, this is all randomized, for some people they were told, put the pot plant where you want, put the the picture where you want, do what you like. And then just before they were about to start work, the experimenter comes in and says, ah, uh, I'm afraid this doesn't work for the experiment. We need to rearrange this. And would then put all the stuff, the pot plant, the pictures, exactly where they would have been in a previous element uh, element of the trial, where people were perfectly happy. But the idea that you give people control and then you take it away, you tell them they've got autonomy and then you rob them of that autonomy, they absolutely hated it. They hate, they wanted to punch the interviewers. Um, they hated the space. They hated the company. They hated the tasks. And they got less done. And so, I mean, the main message of this is the stakes are really high in terms of productivity and happiness. And the stakes into the actual kind of what's being argued over is so superficial. Just the the surface appearance of things. Why does any company that doesn't have to worry about confidential information, why does any company insist on these clear desk policies, which sometimes can be incredibly restrictive? And so that's really an argument for autonomy over your workspace more than, say, an argument in favor of being messy, right? Because it really depends on your personal preference. Absolutely. And if you, yeah, if you you want it messy, you have it messy. If you want it tidy, have it tidy. Uh, No problem. But of course, by its very nature, actually, when you give people autonomy, things tend to start looking a bit messy. And then the architects, the designers, the managers don't necessarily like that. But there is further work arguing that, in fact, the people who choose the messier approach tend to get more done than the people who choose the tidier approach. So uh, that's worth looking at. So the, the, 
key researcher here is a psychologist called Steve Whitaker. Steve Whitaker studies the way that people organize information, both in terms of how do we organize photos, digital photos, how do we organize uh, Word documents, how do we organize emails, and also how do we organize physical paperwork. He's been studying this for a long time. He's just a brilliant guy, really, really interesting. And so Whitaker distinguishes between two uh, broad strategies, filing and piling. When you're talking about physical paperwork, so you either file it away in your filing cabinets, everything's got a, a category, or you pile it, you just have piles of paper on your desk. And everybody would tell you that um, if you can be bothered, then the filing strategy is going to work better. You know, and, and piling paper up is a kind of, it's a sort of moral weakness. And, and you'd all, we'd all be better if we could just have the willpower to do it. That's what we naturally feel. But Whitaker found, no, the pilers are actually doing better. So they, they have less stuff overall. So the filers have this tremendously well-organized waste paper basket, effectively. All their stuff is filed away. So they never, never see anything. They don't know where anything is. They're not organically reminded of anything, and they never throw anything away. Whereas the pilers, they've got stuff in front of them. They kind of know where it is. And uh, periodically, they, they chuck stuff in the waste paper basket. Um, because they don't want too much stuff on their desk. So they've got less paperwork. The paperwork they keep is more important and is better organised. And you might think, well, that's impossible. How could it be better organised? But then think about how a pile of paper on your desk works. You, you pull out a piece of paper, you look at it, you put it back on top of the pile. You pull out a piece of paper, you look at it, you do some work on it, you put it back on top of the pile. So the pile is now organically self-organising. The stuff that you've touched recently is at the top. The stuff that you haven't touched recently is at the bottom. And if you speak to computer scientists, they will tell you that this is, in fact, uh, how computers organize their high-speed, uh, super-fast memory. They don't have, it's called the memory cache. Uh, and They don't have a lot of super-fast memory. You've got to prioritize what's in it for the computer to be efficient. And the system that's usually used is we just keep whatever we've accessed most recently because whatever we've accessed most recently is the thing that we're most likely to need to access again. So this has kind of been mathematically proven in most circumstances to be a highly efficient way of organizing things. And a piece of a pile of papers organizes itself in that way um, without any effort whatsoever. Um, by the way, Whitaker also studied email and um, he put a, a, with permission, put an email tracker on lots of computers, tracked how people were using their email and how they were finding their email, and published this paper that's, uh, the title is, Am I Wasting My Time Organizing Email? And the punchline is, yes, you are. Because if you just have a, one big undifferentiated archive uh, and you search, you are more like, you will, you will find the email more quickly and you're just as likely to find the email you're looking for than if you spend an enormous amount of time organizing this complex structure of folders, um, even leaving, to, leaving to one side all the time it takes to organize the folders, simply trying to find an email in those folders will take you more time than using the search bar. And I think the reason that we use folders is that it feels logical and it feels comfortable because you sort of click and scroll and click and scroll and so it's, it's a visual thing, whereas actually putting the mouse down for a second and typing into a keyboard feels like more work, but actually you get the email much, much more quickly. One part of this too is about the unpredictability of the future, right? So any filing system 
you know, you're attempting to, you know, predict what you're going to need to file in the future, sort of what's going to happen and what's going to need to be filed away. And we're quite bad at doing that. And so isn't that kind of part of why these filing systems don't really work? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Whitaker has this lovely phrase, he calls it premature filing. <laughs> Just adorable. So you, that's where uh, you got this piece of paper. And because you're a filing kind of person, because you feel you need to get organized, you have to decide what this piece of paper is, or, or what this email is applies equally to email, what kind of category yeah, you know, am I going to file this under work or social or a kind of, or is this a particular project? What kind of projects? How many projects? Do I have subcategories of projects? And you try to file it before you really understand what it is. Is this just some vague, vague idea from uh, the boss and it's going to go nowhere? Or is this a major new project? You don't know, but you have to file it anyway. So you stick a label on it. You file it in some kind of category. And, um, Premature filing is is when those categories end up not making any sense because you didn't really understand the structure of the work when you made the decision to file it. And so Whitaker describes, and I think a lot of people will be find this experience very familiar, so folders with only one document in them, whether they're email folders or whether they're regular manila folders, just a single document. That's a failed filing attempt, really, because if, if there's only one thing in the category, the category is not really helping you. Um, and uh, so this is another reason why the pilers tend to have filing systems that make more sense because you, you're leaving the stuff on your desk and then after a week or a month, I mean, I'm not saying hoard it. I'm not saying just keep everything forever. That's not the argument. But you keep it on your desk for a bit. It self-organizes a bit. You pick something up and you, you go, oh, now I know where this goes. Now this goes in the bin or now I know where this fits. This project is shaping up to be something quite significant. I can create a folder for all the stuff in this project. Um, things start to make sense. But very early on, if you're trying to file stuff instantly, you file it without any context. You won't understand what it means. And premature filing is what's going to happen. It's time for a quick pause, but stay with me. Because after the jump... Tim and I finally dig into the mysterious topic of slow motion multitasking and how some fairly accomplished folks like David Bowie, Charles Darwin, and Michael Crichton have used it to push their creativity to new heights. This episode is brought to you by Hover. What's that Shakespeare quote, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet? Well, clearly the bard wasn't thinking about domain names when he penned those lines. These days, your URL is basically your home base for the internet. And it just doesn't feel right if it's anything less than perfect. You've got to find the domain name that's a perfect expression of you and your brand. And I would know because I'm literally wrestling at this very moment with what URL to use for a new project I'm launching. And when I need inspiration, I head right on over to Hover.com. Hover has roughly a gazillion extensions on tap, including .me, .design, and my new favorite for the not-so-serious entrepreneur, .lol. They also offer best-in-class customer support, a simple, beautiful user interface, and none of those gross upsells that dog you on other domain sites. Plus, Hover Connect makes it super easy to connect your new domain to a bunch of popular website builders with just a few clicks. 
Every great idea deserves a great domain name. So head on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly now to get 10% off any new domain. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by Twist. As many of you know, I am no fan of real-time chat messaging, mostly because I think it's impossible to do great work if you're constantly being pinged by requests that need a response ASAP. That said, remote collaboration is a fact of life for most of us. So what's the alternative? Enter Twist, a mindful team communication app designed by the same folks that make the popular productivity app Todoist. What's great about Twist is that it promotes calm, clear, asynchronous communication. Where apps like Slack leave you feeling lost and left out if you're not constantly monitoring the conversation, Twist is designed to allow you to respond to your teammates calmly and at your own pace. By focusing on a thread-based approach to communication, Twist encourages measured, thoughtful discussion and allows you to disconnect to do deep work without that anxious feeling of FOMO. If you're ready for a team communication app that focuses on progress instead of just adding more stress, it's time to try Twist. Visit twistapp.com slash hurry slowly to automatically receive $100 in Twist unlimited credits when you sign up for a new account. That's twistapp.com slash hurry slowly for $100 in credit. Many of us also have this notion that being rather tidy in terms of how we organize our thinking or how we organize our work day as well. So, you know, you might say to yourself, okay, I'm going to focus on this, you know, one project today, or I'm going to focus on this one project for the entire week. And then I'm going to work on my other project next week. Um, But coming back to something you touched on at the beginning, you've talked about a concept that you call slow motion multitasking. And this idea that a little bleed or a little overlap as you shift between projects can actually be a really good thing, especially when it comes to creative thinking. Absolutely. So we are currently arguing over whether multitasking is a good thing or not. And I think we're, we're missing something important. So there's this, it seems to be a generational divide. I don't like to, to generalize on the basis of generations, but my kids, so my daughter, for example, who's 11, uh, reads books while listening to audiobooks. And I keep telling her, the brain doesn't work like that. You can't do that. And she keeps saying, yes, I can. And I, maybe she can, I don't know. But for most of us, you can only focus on one thing at a time. And so the constantly being distracted by your phone, uh, Twitter is one of the things that distracts me a lot. We all have our own different vices. Um, you, 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 you're working on something and then uh, it gets a little bit difficult. You get stuck. Cal Newport talks about this in Deep Work. You get stuck. And because you get stuck, you, you kind of want some release. And so you self-medicate by switching to another task. And maybe it's a useful task like, um, like email. Emails are that's real work. You're being a professional. And yet you've, you've shied away from the important thing at the moment you really needed to focus on it. So I'm with people like Cal who argue that that kind of multitasking is a problem and we need more focus. But here's the catch. As far as we can work out, 
every single significant creative person in both the arts and the sciences, there have been several studies of this by psychologists, every single creative person has a lot of different stuff on the go at the same time. They are, you can, you can call it slow motion multitasking, that's, that's my phrase, or Soren Kierkegaard called it crop rotation. Uh, and sometimes people call it networks of enterprises. That's, that's been um, coined by the creativity researcher Sarah Gruber. Different ways to describe this. But basically, you've got Charles Darwin working on The Origin of Species for Decades, a book about his baby son, which was published when his baby son was 37 years old, uh, a book about earthworms he was working on for 44 years, He's working on geology, he's working on uh, birds. He's doing all of these things at the same time. He's switching from one to another. And I haven't studied Darwin's diaries closely. There are researchers who have. I don't don't think he was switching every five minutes. I think it was more like he'd spend a week on something and then he'd switch. But these are multi-decade projects and he would switch from one to another because he needed a break, he needed a rest, or the projects would cross-fertilise each other. And Darwin's just one example. There are so many I could name. So if you want to go more lowbrow or middlebrow, Michael Crichton. So Michael Crichton, by 1994, Michael Crichton had achieved the scarcely believable feat of uh, having created the world's most commercially successful novel, Disclosure, the world's most commercially successful TV series, ER, and the world's most commercially successful film, Jurassic Park. I mean, how is it possible that one man can do all three of those at the same time. And when you look at his work history, he was writing non-fiction books about programming and non-fiction books about art and medicine. And he was writing novels and he directed Westworld, which was a mid-budget thriller, just doing all of these different kinds of things. It was, it was variety. David Bowie, you could tell the same story about David Bowie. He's working on his own albums and Iggy Pop's albums and a movie soundtrack, and starring in the movie, and collaborating with John Lennon, uh, living in three different cities, uh, and drafting an autobiography, all at the same time. Uh, So this is not, he's not being distracted by Twitter, right? This is the 1970s. But if you can't call that multitasking, well, maybe you can think of a better word for it, but he's shifting from one, one project to another. There have been many studies of this, and we find it again and again and again, the arts, the sciences... Uh, people have more than one project on the go. Very, very successful people. And so I suggest that what we think of as focus, um, yeah, maybe they're concentrating deeply, but they are not narrow in any way. Well, I think the the differentiation, I suppose, might be that a lot of when people talk about multitasking now and they talk about it as a negative thing, they're talking about shifting between tasks, right? So like I'm shifting between Slack and email and trying to write a blog post versus what you're describing is more of shifting between projects and these sort of deeper, long range projects. And and what do you think is fruitful about that? It seems to me that it would be something about one, you know, deeply focusing and intensely making an effort and then, you know, taking a break to let your mind rest and sort of marinate on some stuff while you switch to another project, but then also the the cross-pollination that happens between those two projects. I think both of those things are, are important. So uh, we, we know cross-pollination is incredibly important 
for creativity. I don't think I need to cite chapter and verse on that. And great ideas often come where you have two or three different concepts and they they crash together in a a new and fresh way. Uh, I was just reading an interview with Brian Eno, who was um, he was analogizing a particular painter whose name I forget, who used to paint um, quite realistic p- portraits of women only with blue skin. Uh, and a um, bit of a kitsch painter, but very, very popular, uh, had a Russian name. Uh, and, and Eno was saying a lot of modern music, a lot of thoughtful modern music is the audio equivalent of that. So we're playing traditional ideas, but it's blue. And just this idea of, of where, does it, where does Eno get that idea? We, we basically were using different instruments, different uh, soundscapes that previously didn't exist. And, and so this is Eno, who's someone trained in the visual arts, carrying ideas from the visual arts into audio. And Eno ended up producing David Bowie, producing U2, producing Coldplay, and his own great music. Um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating example of, of cross-pollination at work. But you also mentioned the idea of, of resting. And um, Cal Newport in Deep Work emphasizes that sometimes we just need to focus, we need to concentrate, we need to drive forward. And when it gets hard, sure, it's hard, you need to keep going anyway. And I think that that's insightful and true and a good provocation for most of us. But if, you, if you're talking about a really major piece of work, a uh, breakthrough scientific research, a novel, whatever it is, whatever creative project you're working on, things go wrong. You get stuck. You need a break. You need a, a change of scene. And if you have more than one project to get enthused about, your procrastination on the project you're stuck on suddenly becomes something creative in and of itself. So for, for Bowie, when he was procrastinating on his albums, he was making albums with Iggy Pop. And uh, so, I mean, not really procrastination, just a, just a, the, the old proverb that a change is as good as a rest. So I think that's what was going on. And the same with Darwin. Darwin was so stressed about some of the, the work he was coming up with. He knew it was going to be controversial. Um, he was basically proposing um, uh, 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 that humans were uh, shared a common ancestor with, uh, with chimpanzees. Uh, uh, and that maybe there was no role for God in the universe, although I don't think he went that far, but many other people have have, have taken that step. Hugely provocative idea he wanted, he was, and he was stressed by it. And so he would go in the garden and study earthworms. And his work on earthworms, which took 44 years to complete, is magisterial. So if that's how you take a break, by doing some other great project, yeah, that, that's worth doing. Well, in speaking of breakthrough research, one of my favorite examples of all these themes that we're discussing from the book, um, you know, themes of autonomy, themes of messiness, themes of cross-pollination, is Building 20 at MIT, which was this huge ramshackle structure that was sort of like this three-ring circus of scientific activity that produced an inordinate amount of really incredible game-changing innovations and breakthroughs. What was so special about Building 20? Well, people have different theories about this. Building 20 was this uh, ramshackle plywood structure. It was basically like a very large garden shed. Uh, I think it was three stories and it spread out over several wings, but it was 
pretty much built in an afternoon. It was very, very quickly uh, constructed during the Second World War because um, we needed a place to put radar researchers. So uh, Rad Lab, the radar lab, was located in Building 20 and there were several Nobel Prize winners in, in physics located there and it made this in, incredibly important improvements in how radar worked. So you could take the basic technology which had been invented in the UK and create radar you could put on a plane, radar you could put on a submarine and so on. Um, so that was the initial breakthrough in this very, very temporary space that was too cold in winter and too hot in summer and full of uh, sawdust and uh, incredibly confusing and bewilderingly labelled and just, just a messy space. Fine. MIT promised they're going to pull it down because it's a fire hazard. They promised they're going to pull it down after the war. But then after the war, you get the GI Bill. All the soldiers come back from the war. Uh, they sign up for universities, including MIT. So you need somewhere to put them. You need somewhere to put the researchers. Um, so you can't be knocking down buildings. So, so Building 20 gets this stay of execution. And the stay of execution lasts for half a century. And they keep putting new projects in there. So uh, there's one of the early anechoic chambers where John Cage goes into this chamber and, and because he wants to hear what silence sounds like. And he realises even in this anechoic chamber, which is that it's supposed to be a completely silent space, he can hear his own breathing, he can hear the blood in, uh, in his ears uh, pumping around his body. And he realises there's no such thing as silence. You can never access silence. Uh, and then he composes four minutes and 33 seconds, the infam infamous piece of silence, which of course is not silent. Um, the um, groundbreaking work uh, on uh, Jerry Levitin, if I remember it rightly, uh, on uh, frog cognition and frog optics. Uh, you've got uh, breakthrough work in uh, grammar and in linguistics. Noam Chomsky is there. Uh, you've got uh, early work in, you've got the, the MI2 Model Railway Club is there. And anyone who knows the history of Silicon Valley will know the, the MIT Model Railway Club. They, they were the kind of the proto-hackers, the, one the ones who inspired uh, the hacker movement around the world. They were constantly taking electronics apart and putting them back together again, and so on and so on. So why did it work? So two theories, and I think they're probably both true. One is, um, because it was this very messy, low-rent space, low-status space, people with no power, people were doing something new, people doing something radical, they got put there. The people who were doing something very well established got put in nice spaces. So you have all the low-rent stuff, all the low-status stuff thrown in there together and they start talking to each other. So that's, that's one part of it. You've got this serendipitous in interaction. Uh, the Bose Corporation uh, emerged from um, uh, Bose wandering into somewhere where people were playing around with speakers and thinking, oh, this is interesting. So all kinds of stuff. Um, the second theory is um, that because it was such a messy space, uh, people could do what they liked. So for example, when um, Harold Zakarias built the first atomic clock in Building 20, that's another first for Building 20, he had to take out three floors because it's this big, tall structure. Well, you know, can you imagine if, you were, if you're working in one of the, the classic grand old buildings of MIT or Harvard or, or Oxford or Cambridge, getting permission to take out three floors in order to build your device. And the committees, the, I mean, it's, it's not going to happen. 
building 20s made of plywood. You just did it. You didn't ask for permission. You just did it. And the same thing happened over and over again. People would knock down walls. They would run solar-powered cars up and down the corridors. Uh, they would just sort of jam a screwdriver through a wall and thread some thread some cabling. Um, and people just loved that freedom. This goes back to the conversation we were having about people with autonomy over their office space. Uh, Building 20 offered a tremendous amount of autonomy because nobody cared. Nobody cared what you did there. Nobody cared what you did to the building. And so amazing things happened there. Well, and as I was thinking about why Building 20 was such a special place and and even some of the productivity systems that you were looking at, like why piling is more effective than filing, I kept coming back to the word makeshift and this idea that the best approach to problem solving is very often just to use what's on hand and create the best solution that you can for now, right? That so much innovation comes out of these kind of makeshift solutions. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, all kinds of fun studies. There's one, I'm, I'm trying to remember the author, Mark, somebody, he he was telling me about the, the spaghetti tower problem. I don't know if you heard about this problem, but you're, you're supposed to build a tower out of spaghetti and I think sellotape sticky tape and and uh, and it's supposed to suspend an, a hard-boiled egg I forget all the details you give people a packet of spaghetti and you know how how tall can you build this tower uh, and it turns out that um, kids do much much better even than well-trained structural engineers at this problem and the reason is you give them the spaghetti and you give them 15 minutes and they just start trying stuff they start trying stuff and oh, that doesn't work, something else, that doesn't work, something else, that doesn't work. And very often just getting to grips with a problem, whatever the problem is, you very rapidly clarify what you're trying to do, what works, what doesn't. Um, and just sitting in your armchair with a, with a piece of paper in front of you, thinking really, really hard about the problem, will often not get you very far. Right? It's, it's contact with with what's actually happening. Then you start thinking, reflecting, learning, adapting. And that is often a a very, very messy process. Um, But, uh, you know, you've got to get your hands dirty. Well, and maybe going a little deeper into this idea of problem solving, one of the um, other topics that you touch on in the book is diversity. And you write that diversity trumps ability in many different problem solving contexts. And you emphasize the importance of working with people who think different, who look different, who have different experience, different expertise. And part of the reason that diversity is useful is because it makes us feel sort of uncomfortable and awkward, which keeps us on our toes. Why is that helpful? Yeah. So Scott Page, who's written a number of books on diversity, is is very good on the the broad topic of of why diversity works, uh, quite apart from being there's there's social justice to consider, there are lots and lots of things to consider, but purely in a pragmatic, we want to get the problem solved way. Um, and the way he um, talks about it is to say, think about a, a toolkit. If you get a, a really smart person, they've got lots of tools in their cognitive toolkit. And if you get another really smart person who thinks in a similar way, they're bringing most of the same tools they might bring a couple of new tools or a couple of slightly different skills, but basically they, they haven't really added much. If, on the other hand, you get somebody who sees the world in a very different way, they've got a different set of cognitive tools. And even if they're not as good, they're not as smart, they don't have as many tools, the tools aren't as good, you've got more variety. Uh, and 
So that is the, the fundamental case for diversity. Now, why is it important to um, that that makes us uncomfortable? It's partly that we, we just need to recognize that it does. So there's, there's uh, because we'll resist it. So there's a wonderful study by um, three psychologists led by uh, Catherine Phillips and, and, and two of her colleagues at Northwestern University. And what Catherine Phillips and her colleagues did was to divide a group of students, uh, a whole bunch of students on a randomized basis into groups of four people. And some of those groups were all members of the same college fraternity or the same college sorority. So they all knew each other well. In other cases, it was a group of three people in the same fraternity or sorority and a stranger, a fourth student um, from a different social group. And they just had to solve a kind of murder mystery problem. They had 20 minutes to do it. It was quite a difficult problem. Um, the success rate of a single person trying to do this is just under 50%. It's multiple choice. So there are three possible answers and, and your success rate is less than 50%. So it's a tough problem. If you have four people who are all friends working on this problem together for 20 minutes, the success rate barely shifts. So it just nudges up to just above 50%. If you get three friends and a stranger working on the problem, the success rate jumps to closer to 75%. So this is a big improvement in performance. But the interesting thing is there are no additional cognitive tools at work here. All these, these are just a bunch of students. They're not criminologists. They're not bringing any different kinds of um, insights to bear. All you've got that's making a difference is the awkwardness. And what seems to be happening is because you have the stranger there, people um, take more care. They're less lazy in their thinking. They, they're more explicit about what they're thinking and why they're thinking it and why they're reaching their conclusions. And so the conversation just notches up to a slightly better level. And that's purely the effect of, of the discomfort. But what I found really interesting about this work is that um, when Kate Phillips and her colleagues interviewed the students afterwards, the ones who had been in a group of four friends thought they'd done much better, they'd actually done much worse. And they really enjoyed themselves. Uh, they thought they had a very high quality conversation, even though they did not have a high quality conversation. On the other hand, the groups of three friends and the stranger, who objectively did far better, thought they'd done worse. They were less sure of their conclusion, they were less happy with the quality of the conversation, and they were uncomfortable. They didn't enjoy themselves. So here's a case, sure, it's just a, it's just a randomized trial, it's an experiment, this is not a real world setting, but still, it makes you think. We've got a group of people who are systematically more diverse and better at a task, who think they are worse at the task and who are not having a good time. Uh, and you think about all that we know about birds of a feather flocking together. This is not just a proverb. We've got lots and lots of evidence that people seek out like-minded people. Um, this is making us worse versions of ourselves. It's reducing our ability to solve problems. And yet it, it's making us feel comfortable and we are misjudging. We think we're smarter as a result. We feel more comfortable. Um, we're actually dumber. Well, in the context of diversity, you kind of thinking about that challenge, right? I guess this, this aspect that we objectively know that diversity is going to be better for performance, but being in those situations, it doesn't feel particularly good. You talk about some different ways that teams can kind of rally around a cause or, or agree with each other. And, and one way is team harmony. And then the other is goal harmony. Yeah, so that 
that um, dichotomy uh, comes from um, the the boss of a very very successful British uh, cycling team. Uh, they've won a lot of gold medals in the Olympics. They've won the Tour de France multiple times in the last few years. Um, his name is Dave Brailsford. It's quite a controversial figure, um, but one of the things he emphasises is he does not really care if the people in his team do not like each other. And in fact, there have been some very high-profile tensions within his team. So he he says it's it's quite natural to focus on team harmony, getting people to like each other. He says, I don't care. What I want is the team to be focused on the goal. I want goal harmony. If, all, if the, the team is agreed on the goal, I don't really mind if they don't like each other very much. Now, of course, Brailsford is an, is an unusual character. It's, a, it's an unusual, very high performance environment. But I think it's, it, it is interesting to reflect on that and, and to think about a lot of the the stuff that we do in office environments, in corporate environments, um, we talk about team building. And it, it is often just about creating a certain amount of familiarity. And it's not clear that these team building activities are enormously helpful. Um, what is helpful is to have everyone really focused on the same goal, uh, the same corporate objective to really understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and to believe in that. And there's a amazing study that I think is is not discussed enough. It's people don't talk nearly as much about the Robbers Cave experiment from the 1950s. And the Robbers Cave experiment um, was uh, a study of uh, about 22, 23 uh, boys uh, from Oklahoma City, all socially quite similar, similar age, all Protestant, working class, and they'd been taken off to a summer camp and split into two groups. Well, they didn't, didn't actually realise that there were two groups at first. They just thought that they were in a group of you know, 10 like-minded boys, camping, fishing, hunting, playing baseball. And then after a week of this and everyone getting on brilliantly, they realised there was another group of boys, about the same number of boys, also fishing, making hamburgers, pitching tents, playing baseball. And this tribal warfare almost immediately broke out between these boys. And this whole thing was set up. So all the camp counselors were trained psychologists. They were all observing what happened. And uh, with very little provocation, there was a tremendous amount of vitriolic rivalry between the two groups. And sometimes the camp counselors had to intervene to prevent serious physical violence from taking place. Uh, so this is tribalism breaking out. They really hated each other. So then the question is, right, once you've created this this polarization, how do you get them to cooperate again? And the experimenters did a number of things. So they got, they got the boys to eat together. They got the boys to uh, set off fireworks together. They got the boys to watch movies together. Typical kind of team building exercises. And none of that worked. They, you know, they set off the fireworks separately and hurled abuse at each other. They, they segregated themselves while they were watching the movie and insulted each other. When they were asked to eat together, they threw the food at each other. So what worked? What worked was problems that were urgently needed to be solved and required cooperation. So, for example, when uh, the boys were taken by truck to a nearby lake, and then the truck broke down. Of course, it didn't really break down, but the boys thought the truck had broken down, and suddenly they were all working together attached a rope to the truck, and they were having a tug of war with the truck. Uh, all the 20, 22 boys together trying to solve this problem. And two or three 
of those instances where there was a serious problem that required them to, to cooperate, the tribalism completely evaporated. I mean, these boys had been willing to attack each other with um, rocks in the bottom of, of socks. I mean, really quite nasty violence they were willing to contemplate. And yet by the end of the three weeks, they specifically requested to ride back to Oklahoma City on the same bus. They didn't want to ride in separate buses. And when they stopped for milkshakes and ice cream, they pooled their money. They made sure that every boy was taken care of, everyone could afford snacks. Those tribal identities had completely evaporated. And, and what had done it was not team harmony, not team building, but a shared goal. Well, and I'm really interested in this idea of kind of how much friction is good versus, you know, kind of tipping over into, into, you know, maybe a less productive area or just, just too much tension. And I was reading some recent research by, um, Alison Reynolds and David Lewis in the Harvard Business Review, and they identified another quality in addition to diversity, um, that in their research at least was super important for creative problem solving in teams. And that was psychological safety. So, you know, basically feeling like you weren't going to be picked on or you weren't going to be humiliated for speaking up and sharing your ideas. And I feel like that's a really important caveat to sort of privileging this notion that friction, that the friction that results from diversity is always a good thing. And that idea that you need diversity and psychological safety, like how does that square with what you've learned in your research? I think it's very interesting. And and I certainly wouldn't want to constantly be creating friction for its own sake. Uh, we don't want people to feel unsafe. Uh, and, and, and the robber's cave experiment, there's no way that anybody would be allowed to conduct that kind of experiment today. You just wouldn't get ethical clearance. So I think that's, a, that's an excellent challenge. All, all I would say is that we risk privileging um, people's comfort above everything else uh, when we're building a team and we start saying okay will this person fit in um, when we say will this person fit in what actually we often mean is does this person look like me do they come from the same country as me do they speak the same language as me do they are the same gender as me um, we don't say that we say will they fit in with the team but that's obvious often the kind of decision we're making um, and if we we try to make people feel too comfortable all the time um, then you get no creative friction, you get no uh, no sort of real diversity, no problem solving. So there's a balance here. And I don't suggest that the balance is easy. And that, by the way, is a, a theme throughout the book. So when I say, oh, uh, it can be productive to pile papers up on your desk, uh, I don't advocate hoarding. Uh, when I say it's useful to have several projects on the go at the same time, of course, that can tip into um, wheel spinning, plate spinning, uh, mental churn, anxiety, uh, constant ch rapid task switching, which we know is very unproductive. Um, so it, I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Um, there's always a balance. The argument that I'm making in Messy is that we systematically favour uh, the comfortable, the, the monochrome, the highly organized, the systematized, the categorized. And we favor that because it makes us feel comfortable, whether or not it's appropriate. Sometimes it's highly appropriate, sometimes it's highly efficient, highly effective. 
uh, but we embrace it in all kinds of situations where it really isn't. And we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, when, is, when are these organizational systems working for us? And when are they proving counterproductive? Back in my mid-20s, I can remember having a fight with my then-girlfriend that I'll never forget. It was that classic couple's fight about tidiness versus messiness. And I was, of course, fighting for the righteous cause of keeping everything tidy. My girlfriend, who I should note, always had an impressive knack for high-level abstract thinking, paused suddenly in the midst of our shouting to quietly say, Why is tidy right? And I remember having the simultaneous thoughts, wow, that's a really good question. But also, we're never going to get out of this relationship alive. And it's still a good question. Why is tidy right? Sure, I'm naturally predisposed to align everything on my desk at perfect 90-degree angles and to always be planning what's next. But is that a good thing? Over the past few years, I've been slowly, very slowly, trying to release my compulsion for order and scheduling and planning in favor of a more organic way of working. It's messier and at times quite uncomfortable, but it also feels more generative. That by not getting obsessed with arranging everything, you give yourself more room to range, more room to do something unexpected and more room to be creative. If the idea of questioning the common wisdom about productivity appeals to you, I'll be offering a brand new online course called Reset early next year. It will be packed with insights about how to work in a more sustainable, organic way, including how to align your energy and your attention with the natural rhythms of your body, how to make inspired work part of your daily routine, and how to set boundaries and say no with grace and kindness. For a sneak preview of the course content, visit reset-course.com. That's reset-course.com for more details on my newest project. Be sure to tune in the week after next when I'll be in conversation with Thomas Page McBee, the first transgender man to box in Madison Square Garden and the author of the beautiful new memoir, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man. We'll be talking about gender bias in the workplace, the benefits of asking better questions, and what happens when you finally face your demons. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. What do you do when you need to slow down? I think the trick actually is not what do you do when you need to slow down. The trick is realizing when you need to slow down. And that's much harder. Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for composing our soothing theme music. If you feel like this episode gave you some good food for thought, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a handy link right in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to hurry slowly. Hurry slowly.